0: Welcome to the Kenosha City Church podcast. Take a deep dive into this chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Revelation, telling of things to come. In this message, we'll be in chapters four through five as we ask the question, when is Jesus coming back? Enjoy the message. Good morning, Kenosha City Church, and how did you enjoy losing that one hour of sleep last night, right? Anybody enjoy it? If you didn't enjoy it, just give a good boo, all right? (laughs) That's right. It's okay. We're all a little off this morning because it is the day that everybody wants the national government to abolish, but they just won't. It is daylight savings. But guess what? It's going to be sunny around. It's the, the winter's about gone. Amen to that, right? My name is Andy, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just excited that you can be with us today here at Kenosha City Church. And we're going to dive right into our series, Are You Ready? It is a study in the book of Revelation. And the book, this is often tied to the things that lead up in the unfolding of the end of the world, and it depicts the coming of Jesus Christ. And so, Revelation is intriguing to many people. If this is your first week, you've jumped in in a good week. But I want you to know, uh, if you've missed any, you can go to Kenosha.church and go to our message section. You can get all caught up. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you would like to know, if you could know, how many would you like to know when Jesus is coming back? Just raise your hand, all right? You're like, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like to know. How would you like to know how he's going to come back? Raise your hand. If you're like, yeah, I'd kind of like to know that. I think I would, too. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. At the book of Revelation and there's many other books actually in the Bible, describe the end, the end of the world. And they go into great detail of how this will happen. But... It is not exactly clear when Jesus is exactly coming back. Jesus said this very clearly. Also, uh, the how, even though it explains the how, there is a difference of opinion amongst theologians who hold the Bible as God's word uh, that say it's going to happen. Because again, the language is, uh, is apocalyptic, which means it's not always clear uh, to our minds what's going to happen. And so there is a difference of opinion of when Jesus is coming back and how he's going to come back. But what we don't have a difference of opinion, if we're going to be Bible Christians, is that Jesus is coming back. Amen? But that's not going to prevent us today of asking the question, when is Jesus coming back? Oh yeah, we're going there today, all right? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 13, verse 32. He said, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when that time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, uh, gave each one of of his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or the crowning of the rooster, or the early in the morning. Jesus uses the example of servants working for their boss. And their boss says, hey, I have some work for you to do. And the servants are like, all right, that's great. When are you coming back, boss? And the boss said, I'm not telling you, right? Right? I'm not telling you when, you're com- when I'm coming back. Just do the work. Now, I've mentioned this before, but uh, when I was in grad school or seminary, uh, I was a butler, if you can <laughs> believe that. I was a butler uh, for a gigantic mansion in Northbrook, Illinois, the biggest mansion in Northbrook, as a matter of fact. And so I was the only one to live in this mansion. Uh, I had many other workers that came and went during the day, but I was the only one to live in this mansion. All I had to do was do a a number of chores, and I can live in my corridors in this mansion for free. It was an awesome gig. I knew everything else was downhill from there, all right? And so uh, she would give us a number of, of things to do, but then she'd give her other workers to do, like, you know, grounds work or other work, maintenance work around the house. But the thing is, the owners of the mansion would often go to their properties in California for the winter. So they gave us this giant list. They said, hey, we're going to go to California for the winter. We're coming back March 15th. Now you can imagine if you had a whole list of work that could be done, and it didn't have to be done this very moment, and you knew when the owner was coming back, when do you think you would do all that work? March 14th, someone said. You know what? I will say, my work was like day to day. Like I had to feed the birds. They didn't want them to die. I had to pick up the newspapers. They didn't want them to. So I, I had to shovel the snow. So that type of thing didn't really affect me. But all the other workers, you know what they did? They're like, she back March 15th. So they would lay back. They'd turn on the big screen TV. I'd come home in the middle of the day from school. They'd be, they'd be just hanging out. They'd be sleeping in the hallway where there weren't cameras. Like They were literally just taking advantage of the time that they had because they knew when the owner was coming back. But if they didn't know when the owner was coming back, I imagine the behaviors would be a bit different. I mean, let's look at it this in our life. Husbands, if your wife gives you a honeydew list and your wife doesn't tell you when they need to be done, you need to understand she wants it done yesterday, right? But how often do we have things that are, that are oh, someone's clapping on that one, all right? But... But how often is it that in school the teacher's like, okay, the assignment's due in two weeks, and it's midnight the day before, and you're like, do I need to ask for an extension? Am I writing that email saying, please, please, please help me because I'm not ready? How many of you wait to the last minute? How many of you are procrastinators? I know some of you, you're like ready for that pop quiz all the time. Good for you, all right? But here's the deal. A lot of us will procrastinate if we know that we have extra time. Jesus says to be ready and alert. If you knew what time he was coming back, I guarantee you this. If we knew when Jesus was coming back, do you think there'd be an urgency in the mission? Do you think there'd be urgency in our worship? Do you think there'd be urgency in our praise? Or would we do this? Mm, daylight savings time. I'm just going to stroll in here. I'm really tired. <sighs> Give me some music I want to hear. Give me a message that. Meets my needs and make me happy, church. Mm, That's what would happen, and I believe, because the urgency of Christ's second coming is an afterthought for the church. That is what is happening, at least in the Western church. We're falling asleep. And that's why Jesus says, be alert. Wake up from your slumber, because the time is near. Time. Time is kingdom currency, and once you spend time, you can never get it back. Time is the most valuable commodity that you have in your entire life. He wants us to be aware of His presence, He wants us to be locked on to His mission and His purposes for our life and for His church because He can come back at any moment. He can. And he will. Be ready right now. That's why we are studying the book of Revelation. Again, if you're just joining us today, we're not studying it because of world events that are happening right now. We're doing that despite that. We had this planned a long time ago. And then we felt like God was saying a, a few months prior, hey, start in the middle of February. I'm like, all right, we're moving this from April to the middle of February. And then the world decided to go crazy again. All right? So, hey... That's just an illustration to show you we need to be ready. The world is. The book of Revelation is with us no matter what situation we're in to tell us Be ready. And people study Revelation because it's so important. It helps us to get ready for Christ's second coming. And many sermons have been spoken about this. You can Google uh, messages on Revelation. You can get books on Revelation. You can take online courses on Revelation. You can go to conferences on Revelation. And oftentimes these things spend the majority of the time asking the questions of when and how Jesus will come back. Those are the ones that make a lot of the money, right? When they sell all their books, it's like we're going to tell you when Jesus is going to come back. When is it going to end? Is it going to be twenty twenty four? Is it twenty thirty two? Is it the year three thousand? When will it occur? How will it occur? Will there be earthquakes? Will there be wars? Will Russia swoop down? Will Iran do something? We know there'll be bombs. Like people just love this stuff and they eat it up. But that's not the primary reason of why we study the Book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 7-8 says this, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now we will talk about today when I think Christ will come back. Now it's not exactly the way, I'm not going to give you ever a date, alright? never going to say, he's coming on this date. That would be disobedience. But I'm going to tell you why I believe his second coming is closer than ever But before we do that, we need to speak the details of the circumstances of which our hearts must be found. We must first talk about something way more important than the when or the how. It's how our worship is. That's what's more important. The worship that we have for Jesus. That will prepare us. I once heard it from Pastor Matt Chandler. He said this, that the when and the how is often talked about at the expense of the who and the why. You can be ready, you think you can be ready, if you know when he's coming back. You think you can be ready because you know and you have a really solid conviction of how he's going to come back. But you might not be ready. You might not be ready. In fact, if you only are speculating when Christ can come back, and that's the only thing that you're worried about, I may say to you today with confidence that you're not ready. You see, it's less about the when or the how, but the who and the why. That is what our study in Revelation is all about. It's less about the when and the how, but the who and the why. Write that down as you're taking notes. Again, in the book of Revelation, you're going to want to take notes. There's no way that you'll remember any of this stuff because the book of Revelation is a hard book. But the idea of this, as we talk about when Christ is coming back, is less about the when and the how, but the who and the why. To be ready, we need to be right then, before we start speculating on the when and the how, we need to be right with our worship. Because worship will prepare you for whenever Christ will come back, and he is coming back. So we're going to look at three reasons today of why we need to be in right worship to God. Three reasons that will ultimately prepare us. And then finally, we will begin the discussion that we'll carry over in the weeks following of why I think his arrival is closer than we think. Let's turn to Revelation chapter four. Revelation chapter four. Turn there in your Bibles or your app. If you haven't downloaded the Kenosha City Church app, that's a great app to have during this time. Revelation chapter four, and we're moving from chapters one through three, which is more of a letter portion of the book, and now we're moving to more of an apocalyptic approach. Apocalyptic language just means revealing. It's in Greek, it means revealing. It's, God is going to reveal things to us in language that is very visual. John is seeing things by a vision. He's going to see the end of the world by a vision. And there's two things going on. Number one, he's having a hard time understanding what he's seeing. And he's using his human language to describe what he's seeing. Human language to describe real things that are happening. Secondly, God is using his spirit to speak specific things, specific uh, descriptions, to heighten our awareness and our minds that will travel to our heart. You see, John could just give us a linear news report like he could read in the newspaper, and that'd be uninspiring. It'd just be more interesting, like, ooh, this war's going to happen, this war's going to happen. But God's not interested in us just understanding and knowing knowledge, no. He wants our hearts changed. And so he uses apocalyptic language to, to, to shake our hearts and our imagination. And he's speaking of real things happening. Now often apocalyptic language can confuse people and even people have built really weird theologies off really weird interpretations of apocalyptic language. I love what Alistair Begg has to say about this. He says, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. Let's say that again. The plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. What he's saying is this, don't go off into the weeds and build some kind of theology that you say is normal. The Bible is very, very clear. It's so clear that a 12-year-old can understand it. A 12-year-old can place their faith and trust in Jesus. I mean, even a child younger than that. And begin to follow in the things of Jesus as they study the Scriptures. Yes, some Scriptures are harder than others. But with proper study, uh, you can understand the Scriptures. Chuck Smith, who founded the Calvary Chapel movement, a really spirit-led movement of, of churches around the country, he said this. He said, I'm not interested in new truth. I'm interested in old truth. Do you get that? I'm not interested in new truth. I'm interested in old truth. You see, when we read Scripture, sometimes we can get, you're like, ah, I just, I've read this Scripture four or five times, or I've heard this before, you know, or, ah, you know, I just, I, I, we, our hearts are enamored by something new. We love new things. And what I want to say is the temptation is, is that we try to dig deeper into Scripture and have it say something it's not saying and build a really weird theology off of it. And that's where cults are started, to be honest. When we read Scripture, it's not finding something new, but finding the old, afresh. The Word of God, it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written thousands of years ago. Whenever someone says, I've discovered a new truth about the Bible that nobody else has ever believed, like I said, red flag at least should go up. More than likely, if that idea goes, it may lead a very bad direction. So we're going to study Revelation with a plain understanding, and I understand that apocalyptic language can be hard, but we're going to do the work to understand that and put it into context of what God wants to say to us. So it's less about the when or the how, but the who and the why. And we will understand uh, where we need to be through proper worship. We need to be found when Christ comes back with a worshiping heart. So number one, if you've taken notes, the right worship, and we need to be in right worship, the right worship looks to the right throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. So we see John is brought up in the spirit, he's seeing a vision of heaven. This is one of the most descriptive moments of heaven that we have in scripture, although heaven is mentioned 500 times in the Bible. Heaven is a real place. It's not just a place of mental bliss. It is a real place that people that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus will go to live in all of eternity. Heaven is creation uh, that is not fallen. Heaven is a place that there will be no sin, there will be no sickness, there will be no pain, there will be no disappointment. But it will be worship in high definition. And as we see later in Revelation, heaven is so, and we're going to talk about, by the way, as we progress through Revelation, we'll deal more with hell, we'll deal even more with heaven. But as you'll see later on in Revelation, uh, it is so awesome uh, that even gold, yes, the precious metal of gold that we often fashion very important things with, is pavement. It's pavement, which means this. Oftentimes, people, when they think of heaven, they don't get excited. Like, are you excited to go to heaven? People are like, well, I I guess. But what they're really thinking about is this. You know, I just, I don't want Jesus to come back until, you know, I get married, or I don't want Jesus to come back until I have a few kids. I don't want Jesus to come back until my kids have kids. I don't want Jesus to come back until I get that promotion and I can go to Hawaii. I don't want Jesus to come back until I retire. I don't want Jesus to come back until my health wears out. And what we're saying is this, and we've all said it, and I've said it. What we're saying is this, heaven is awesome, but I think the things that I want in this life right now maybe just a little bit more. And I want to tell you, it is a falsehood from the pit of hell. I want you to know this right now. The greatest thing you can think of in this earth is the least thing that you can receive in heaven. Heaven is going to be awesome. It is going to be what our hearts long for. And the business of heaven when we arrive is worship. As we see Jesus seated on the throne, Revelation 4-2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. We immediately see, as John is brought up into heaven, he immediately sees Christ sitting on a throne. This throne representing an unshakable reign of Christ. This calls back the prophecy in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah, he was caught up into heaven in a vision. And this is what he described in Isaiah 6, one. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory. A vision recorded in the book of Psalms, Psalm, Psalm 47.8 said, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne." God reigns. Our God is in control. Our God is king. Jesus is king. He's not just king over the church. He is the king of all the earth and all of the universe. Amen? And he reigns over all people of all time. And our responsibility is this. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge him as king. Because he is king. And John John describes Jesus as trying trying to put into words the beauty of this king. This glory is overwhelming him with words that he cannot express. So Revelation 4, 3, we see this. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. Man, he's just seeing beauty. He's like, man, this is the best way I can describe it. On his throne, Jesus is about to pour out his wrath. ...on a disobedient world to consume those that are separated from him. That's what we're going to see in the chapters following. But we notice something really peculiar here around the throne. It's a rainbow. It's a rainbow. You know, the rainbow has taken on different connotations in the modern era. The rainbow has taken on one word. It's called pride. And that is diametrically opposed to what God's meaning is for the rainbow... The rainbow is his. The rainbow uh, is his definition and it's his promise. And the rainbow, when we, or anything else that God speaks of in the scripture, when we begin to redefine it or reposition it in a different way, it's an affront to him. I want you to know that. That's not very popular today, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to side with Jesus uh, if, if we are opposed to him, right? People are talking about the wrong side of history. We're going to see right now where history's going to end. It's around the throne of Jesus. And the rainbow is a sign that symbolizes God's covenant faithfulness to his people. We first saw this when he flooded the world. And when the flood waters receded, there was a rainbow for the first time. And that was God's covenant to the world that he would never flood the world and show his wrath through waters over the entire world like that. Again, you have localized floods, but never again will there be a worldwide flood. This time... This rainbow is a reminder, and it's a promise, that he has a covenant with every single person who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus alone. What we're about to see in, in the book of Revelation is horrific wrath of God. But what we're going to see here is if you are in Christ, you're going to be protected from the wrath of God because you are his. It's your promise, and he's showing the rainbow again. He's like, I want you to listen here. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about because I have you in my hand, Christ is saying. Revelation 4, chapter 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne, and seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne, and four living creatures covered their eyes in front and back, while the throne on each side. You want to talk about like, huh? Right? But there's some beautiful things happening here around the throne of God. We see 24 thrones around the throne of God. Now, many theologians believe that this 24 represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles uh, of the early church. And what this represents is this: around the throne, the 24 thrones, this this the symbolic nature around the throne is the entire church it's the entire groupings of people who have placed their faith in christ before christ and after christ and as we'll see later in revelation there will be a great revival uh, in israel uh, where a number of jewish people will give their life to christ that is yet to come in this history right now this could happen before our very eyes but what we're seeing in scripture right here is the representation of the entire church and where they at they are worshiping jesus on the throne. Verse 5, we see flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder uh, coming through. And, uh, you know, we're going to sing this song later today, and I love it. But these flashes of thunder and lightning show the authority of who God is, but it also is a foreshadow of the wrath he's about to pour out. Everyone in this picture is focused on Jesus and nothing else. And when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess not one person will be able to stand and say I'm not going to bow before you God listen here's the problem when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth and every knee shall bow and tongue confess listen if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus by that moment it's too late but what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna come back and every single person will be thrown to their knees and acknowledge him as king. You're like, who? Vladimir Putin? Yes. Osama bin Laden? Yes. And everybody in between. You mean that person that I have really difficult issues with? Yes, including you. We will all be on our knees. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. worship, it's directed on this one throne and one throne only, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But let's let's just get real here. It's easy to say, Sunday school answer, you know, who's on the throne? Jesus, right? But how often, maybe even right now, do you want to be on the throne? Let's demonstrate. Some of us, we, uh, look at that, some of us, we want to, I'm, I'm coming back, don't worry. <laughs> Some of us, we want to be our own king or queen, right? So I have a crown here, a scepter. So this is what we're going to do. This is the throne, if you don't understand that, all right? This is a crown. And this is a scepter. And what we say is this. Jesus, I know you're king. Jesus, I'm going to sing your songs. Jesus, I'm going to join your Bible study. Jesus, I'm going to look super spiritual. And I'm going to smile at the people I want to smile. But in my heart of the things I don't want to give up, I'm going to sit on the throne. I'm going to let you know that you're king when I want you to be king. Because I'm going to tell you, there's areas of my heart, there's areas in my life, I'm, I'm just not ready to give up to you. Do you want to know what Jesus? I know I shouldn't be saying this, but my heart is saying this. But there's moments I want to be king, and I will be king. This looks really silly, doesn't it? But when we say to Jesus, "I'm king or I'm queen," this is look. This is what we look like to the king. Dress up day. He sees the false crown. He sees the worthless scepter and he sees the throne that you're sitting on as merely a folding chair. There's only one king. It's not me. It's not you. It's not anybody in this world. It's not any monarch around the world. It is King Jesus. And we need to acknowledge that indeed he is king, church. Amen? But we want to be king or queen about our money, our sexuality, our plans, our traditions in the church. We want our thrones, and it's pitiful in the sight of the Lord. So let's acknowledge him as king and know right now that worship is going to be the main event in heaven. And when we begin to worship right now on this earth, it is preparation, what we're going to do all in heaven. Now, some like, I don't like worship. I, that's going to be heaven? That sounds like the other place. Here's the deal. When you begin to lean into worship, when you begin to just get out of your comfort zone, when you begin to give God your all in every area of your life, when your life becomes an act of worship, you begin to see just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, and you want more. You want more. Worship is not just singing, by the way. It's a way of life. We are made to worship, and we will worship something, whether it's Jesus on the throne or something you're going to put on your own throne. Worship is a declaration of what ultimately has worth in your life. Now how do you know what you're worshiping? That's a good question. Let's take an assessment. How do you know what you're worshiping in your heart? Well, you can check the Screen Time app on your phone. You can see what you're checking out online or what you're listening to, or maybe the the, you know, the Spotify playlist of what you're listening to most, or maybe your podcast. That, that could be a good indication. You can look on your bank statements or your bank accounts and see what you're spending money on. That may be a good indication. Uh, maybe who you're spending time with, and maybe how you're praising Jesus. So if you're like, I don't really want to praise Jesus, okay, then what, what's, what's covering your mind in the moment that you should be praising Jesus, but you're thinking about something else. Maybe it's not depending on the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe Maybe whatever you're depending on instead of the Holy Spirit, maybe that's what you're worshiping. Uh, maybe it's how you value kingdom work. I mean, some of us as Christians, come on, let's have a moment here. Uh, some of us as Christians, we don't want to do the work of Jesus because we're stomping our feet saying, God, I want it this way. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And when he sees us saying, I want it my way, Jesus. I want this song. I want this approach. I want this. He's like, now, now, right? Right? He's done this to me. Has he done that to you? Of course. God has made you to worship. And the question is: Is your heart worshiping the right person? It's less about the when or the how, but the who and the why. The right worship looks to the right throne. Secondly, the right worship will express praise. Revelation chapter four, verse eight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around inside. And day and night, they never stopped saying, listen to this, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And they would repeat this over and over and over again. Sometimes like, man, that song's repetitive. This one's forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The four living creatures we see here are described also in Ezekiel chapter 1. These are angels. Angels are messengers of God. We don't worship angels. Angels do the work of the kingdom. They also come and protect you. Really amazing things. We're not enamored by them because they want you to be enamored by God. But we see here in Ezekiel chapter 1 a very similar picture. And we see that these type of angels are specifically an exalted order of angels called cherubim. Cherubim angels, this exalted order of angels, specifically, their job is just to worship all the time. And in the scene in heaven, these angels, along with the church, the 24 thrones, their sight is set on Jesus, crying out praise day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worship is expressed, as we see here, through audible praise. Right? Worship is is expressed in praise, through audible praise. Now, someone may say, well, I like to praise quietly, right? Sometimes we come into church and, you know, I just, I know there's some people that sing and do all this. I just want to, I just i just want to praise quietly. And listen, there may be moments that God brings you to that where you are contemplative. But it's like, well, but we're doing a song, of celebration, and it's like, Jesus, you're great. And you're just like, like this. Like, unless there's a moment, and listen, we don't judge here. But unless there's a moment uh, going on in your heart that's not a contemplative song. That's a song of celebration. It's a song that lifts up voices. It's a song that if we were all just like, mm, like this and we're like celebration. like What's going on in here? We're not celebrating, right? Praise is, Praise is audible. Praise is lifted up. And it's meant to be done together. And together when we're praising and when the celebration commences, the volume rises up just a little bit or sometimes a lot. Because our voices are lifting Jesus together. I love this, Psalm 150. This is bonus. We don't have a slide for this. Psalm 150, it says this, Hallelujah, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty expanses. Praise him for his powerful acts. Praise him for his abundant greatness greatness. Praise him with the trumpet blast. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. This is a praise band. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. What we see here is there's a lot that Jesus Receives praise for because he's worthy of our praise. Jesus is worthy of our highest praise. And together when we're his church, we have reason to praise. It's going to get a little loud in here because Jesus has done a lot for us. Amen? Praise is audible. It's using our voice. It can get emotional, physical movements, and the overflow of the filling of the Holy Spirit pointed exclusively at the throne of God. Now, make no mistake, I'm not telling you to look like someone else. I'm not telling you like this is worship. No. When we praise, it evokes a response in us. And it may look different depending on the person. You get that? I'm not about to tell you right now, praise must look like this or whatever because that's a new legalism. Where the spirit of the Lord is, you know what that happens? There's freedom. And when there's freedom, you get to express praise and and, and just complete genuine heart before the Lord. When Elias was little, he would do drawings every day. Now, Elias, uh, when he was young, he had a speech delay, so he said very few words to the age of three. So he was really quiet, man, he was so cute. But one day he drew a picture, and I was typing on my laptop, probably doing a message. And he got done with a masterpiece. He'd just seen a train. This is his picture. And he came up to me. Remember, he can't really talk yet. And he just did this. And I kept typing. Didn't know he was there. And he just waited and waited. And then finally I noticed, and my heart just melted because I realized what he was doing. He had been making pictures for months. But what he really wanted was the praise from his father. And I'm like, Elias, that is amazing. And you should just see his smile was so big. Again, he couldn't talk. So his smile just got so big. I'm like, that is amazing, amazing picture. Oh, go do more. Show me more. That is so good. Can I hang this up? He was so excited. But you know what I could have done? He could have held this up. I could have looked at it and looked down and started typing again. I could have been praising in my heart. I could have been really happy That thought, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> Good job, right? That's great. I could have praised in my heart. But that's not the transaction that praise comes alive with. The transaction is giving the praise and people receiving the praise. When we praise Jesus, yes, he knows praise is going on in our hearts, but he loves it when we audibly give him praise. He doesn't need our praise. Jesus isn't lacking anything. He doesn't need anything. He loves it when we praise him. And so we want to give him praise so that he may receive our praise audibly, emotionally. You get that? Worship is the main event of heaven. God loves to receive our praise. He stands there not in need of it, but he stands there ready to receive it from you and I. We see Jesus receiving the praise in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. It's a declaration. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, it is a declaration, this praise, as they say over and over and over again. It is a declaration that he goes before us and that he is sovereign. It's a declaration that our God reigns. It's a declaration that you're in charge. It's a declaration that when we worship before God, he's gonna fight our battles. I don't know what you bring in this room this morning. Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's that thing you've been asking God for and it just doesn't seem to be coming. And I want you to know, He goes before you. He fights before you. And our fight isn't our fist. Isn't words that destroy other people. Our words of battle is praise. Praise. That's how we fight our battles. When we praise Jesus, it's surrendering our own ways and expectations to his trust and sovereignty. Did you know that's why we raise our hands? Why we feel compelled to do that? You know, if you were held up in a robbery, what would you do? you put it up in your hands, right? Surrender. Well, we're not being held up in a robbery. We're giving what wasn't supposed to be our burdens. And God, you are sovereign, and you are in control, and you are worthy of our highest praise. Third, when we praise, the right worship will prepare you, prepares you for when he arrives John has the mindset as he sees worship. You know, he, he didn't, I think it's really interesting. John just didn't go straight up to heaven. And, and Jesus is like, okay, John. All right, so I brought you up to heaven here. What do you think? Yeah, pretty good, right? So anyway, here's how the end's going to happen. This is going to happen. You know, Russia's going to come down, you know, and all this stuff. And, and uh, you, know, by, you, know, you know, this year, blah, 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 blah. And so, uh, what do you think? Oh, wow, that's, that's really intriguing. Now, before he even gets into any of that stuff. And by the way, Russia was a joke, okay? All right? Any of that stuff, he shows people worship. The right worship will prepare you for when he arrives. John, in the midst of worship, Revelation 5.1, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. As we see the people worshiping Jesus, John sees God has a scroll in his hand, his right hand specifically. Now, in the Roman Empire, scrolls with seven seals were used as a, uh, as a deed. They were used as, uh, as an inheritance. But what we see here is that God doesn't need to inherit anything. He owns it. This is his proof of ownership of the world. He already owns it, and now through divine judgments, he is going to make it new again. But once this scroll is opened, it will begin a chain of events that will bring about the end of the world. Now, right now in 2022, I believe that God is still holding on to this scroll. I don't believe it's been opened, okay? But when he does open it, the end will begin. So we need to make sure that before that scroll is opened, that worship is preparing us now that we are giving God our highest praise that our way of life how we think, what we do, what we do in mission how we serve the church, how we serve our community how we serve our our neighbors uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and showing them Jesus Christ and, and leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ must be our priority that prepares us for worship now There are signs that point to the nearness of Jesus' second coming. We see this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4 through 8. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, but there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Notice that last phrase, all these things are the beginning of birth pains. You know, my mom, when she was pregnant with my, my sister, she had a number of birth pains towards the end of her pregnancy, and, and when she would get them, she'd run to the doctor or run to the hospital, like, no, 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 you're fine, you can go home, no, 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 you're fine, you can go home. Well, one day she had these, these pains, and she thought, you know, I'm tired of going to these places, so I'm just going to... I'm just gonna go shopping, so my mom literally goes shopping, has pains, and her water breaks. Like clean up an aisle seven, right? Like her water breaks, and she runs home, and all of our members' little kid is, my water broke, my water broke, my water broke. And I'm like, what is that? Well, I didn't know what it was, but hey, within a few hours, my sister was in in the world, right? Describing birth pains, it's really important. It doesn't mean that, oh, this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. When when the birth pains begin, it is close to the end. I believe we are experiencing birth pains in this world right now. We're in an era just before the beginning of the end. How long do birth pains last? Biblically, they could be last than, less than a year, or they could be more than 100 years. And I want you to know, even if I'm wrong of this being the era of birth pains, if I turn out to be wrong, it's not because the Bible was wrong. I'm just speculating right now. I'm speculating about what we observe, and I'm gonna give you reasons why, I believe we're in an era of just before the end, the birth pains, all right? Jesus told us to be aware of the birth pains, and I'm trying for us to at least be aware of them. If this is not towards the end and we have another thousand years, at least we, what I'm going to do is bring you to a point of being more alert. Does that make sense? So, two reasons I think Jesus is close to returning, and then next week we'll cover a couple more. Number one is biblical prophecy. The Bible is filled with prophecy through the pages of the Old Testament and that, that, New Testament that point to the future events. Prophecy is God supernaturally speaking in the natural world. And in Scripture, we have a perfect record of prophecy. The Lord prophesies His birth, His death, His resurrection, and His second coming, amongst many other things. And so Jesus promised that He is coming soon. He promised that He is coming soon. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 says, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. And this is why the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain. One at the handmill, One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming." Jesus is preparing eternity, the foundations of eternity of which you will live somewhere in heaven or hell. Throughout the pages of Scripture, we're provided, if you're a follower of Christ, these promises. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you have an inheritance, an inheritance that's unshakable. But we clearly see here that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. People are going to be going about their business, and like a snap, it's going to change. We got a little foretaste of this in 2020. We were minding our business in early March, and then on March the 11th, boom, everything changed. Like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. When God commences the end, it's gonna be much bigger than that. It's gonna be like the days of Noah. Notice verse 37. As the days of Noah, people were living their normal lives, and God was about to judge the whole world with the flood. The people of Noah's time, they had pre-warnings. Noah spoke to them. They had a warning through him. And then they had a warning called the construction of a big boat. This big boat was being constructed. And instead of taking heed that maybe something's going to happen, they laughed at Noah. Well, the very thought that Jesus Christ is going to come back and make all things new, that Jesus Christ is king, many people will laugh at that. But laughter does not deter the plans of God. The birth pains are warnings today, just as the ark was a warning in the days of Noah. Get ready. We don't know the day, but we can see the storm clouds in the sky. Jesus also promised, not only he was coming uh, soon, prophetically, but prophetically, Jesus promised this generation will not pass. Matthew 24, verse 32. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you can know that it is near. Right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Like, whoa, he's kind of he's kind of narrowing it down a little bit. So the question is, what is this generation? Who is the generation that will experience the birth pains and then and then the end times will commence? In Matthew chapter 23 and 24, Jesus explains many things that will happen during the buildup and duration of the end times. And when Jesus said this generation will not pass, he's not stating a specific date, but specifically who and what will happen in the end. The Bible states that leading up to the duration of the end times, it will occur in a single generation. Now the question is, how long is this generation? Well, if you go by lifespan, it could be between 70 and 120 years. This generation, whatever that generation is, will be a generation, I believe, between 70 and 120 years. So who is this generation? Well, Jesus could not have been speaking of the disciples because the disciples are dead. The disciples did not see the second coming of Jesus. Some people have stated the events of Jesus in Revelation uh, took place by AD 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem and that everything that we read in Revelation is in the past, but I believe that's an error. Why? Because the events described in Matthew 23 and 24 in the book of Revelation are too universal and destructive to be localized to one city in Jerusalem. In fact, the Greek word for generation is often used to represent a particular kind of people. Who are these people? Believers. Including those and the nation of Israel. When we get to our Roman study, we will see how God will graft Israel back into the church. There'll be a number in the end times, a number of Jewish people that will give their life to Jesus. There will be a revival in Israel. And this is where it gets interesting. If this generation includes believers, including those uh, Jewish people that have come to Jesus Christ in the nation of Israel, what has to happen? And this is the big clue. We have prophecies, but number two, Israel has to return. And Israel has returned. Israel was absent from our maps for 2,000 years. In fact, for many, they felt like prophecy was on hold. When you read the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and when you read the New Testament and when you read Revelation, you see that Israel has an integral part in the end times. But we, we know from history that Israel fell in 586. And for over 2,000 years, Israel was not a nation until 1948. This was prophesied to occur in Joel chapter 2, or Joel chapter 3, excuse me. Joel chapter three, verse one. Yes, in those days of that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and take them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there because of my people and my inheritance, Israel. And the nations have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries, and they have divided up my land. Judah, the Southern kingdom, fell to the Babylonians in 586, some 2,000 years ago. And the scriptures are clear that Israel will be a major part of the end times. In fact, it'd be the center of the end times. And yet the nation of Israel didn't exist until after World War II, and a charter of nations said, we need to have a land where the Jewish people can return. And in 1948, the nation of Israel was reestablished some 72 years ago, setting into motion, I believe, biblical prophecies. Israel's a major focal point of the world even today, There are rumors of wars all the time. Nations such as the nation of Iran that that have statedly said they want to wipe Israel off the map. Nations today that that want to to harm Israel. And Israel is often the the center of many things. In fact, I just read in the news this morning that that the the Israeli president wants Jerusalem to be the center of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. World history will culminate in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to name a date or a time. And listen, if Israel were to fall in a war, I believe God would have to restore them again. But Israel's back on our maps. It's a clear sign of the times that Jesus is coming soon. Now, next week, I'm going to give additional reasons why I think it's close. We're then going to talk about the role of the church. Will the church face some of the wrath that is to occur? And then we'll begin to look at specifically what that end is going to look like. Does that make sense? But I want you to know, our hearts need to be ready. I believe the time is near. If I'm wrong, well, guess what? You're going to meet him when we die. And our hearts need to be right with worship. Amen? Signs serve as a reminder that he is coming soon. So remember this, it's less about the when or the how, but the who and the why. But when you worship the who, that's Jesus, and know the why you do it, you'll be ready for the when and the how as it unfolds. Here's the prep kit today, and this is our response. And I think a lot of us need to respond this morning. We need to pray for the nations. Wars and rumors of wars, we need to pray. Obviously for Israel, we need to pray. Uh, for the Ukraine and Russia. We need to pray for the n- nations that we have partnerships all around the world, South Africa. Uh, we need to pray for, for Kenya. We need to pray for Italy. We need to pray for maybe nations that God lays on your heart. He said to go into the world, ponton is etne is the, is the Greek for that. Ethne means where we get ethnic. He wants every single people group in the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to pray for the nations. We're gonna do that this morning. Secondly, we're gonna pray for the church. We want want to make sure that not only is Kenosha City Church on the front line of of moving the gospel forward, we want an awakening in the Western church, an awakening to the things of the Holy Spirit, an awakening to the urgency of the gospel. And in order for that to happen, you need to pray for your heart. Now, I know what you're gonna think. Ah, well, you know, the nations and the church and somebody else, they need prayer. No, 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 your heart needs prayer. There's ugly things in our heart that God wants so that we can be. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to worship. But I'm going to ask you, to pray for the nations, the church, and your heart. I'm, I don't even know what this is going to look like, but I encourage you, as God lays nations on your heart, and lays the church in your heart, I want you to come up here and pray. So gonna like, I'm going to stay in my seat. That's fine. But the reason why I want you to come up here is because earlier I said, and praise, get yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit, that's your practice. Nothing special about this piece of carpet up here. It's more about your posture. So as we w- go into this last worship song, I invite you to come up here and pray for the nations, pray for the church, and pray for your heart. You're like, ah, it's just not what I do. Guess what? I want, I'm going to challenge you today. My challenge is whatever you feel like that's not you, I want you to do that today, all right? That's my challenge to you. So, Father, we love you and we thank you. And, God, we believe that you're preparing our hearts for you to do an amazing work in this world. We pray for revival. We pray that people would come to know you. We pray, God, that our hearts be ready in praise and worship as you come. As we continue to pray, I want you to know there may be people in this room today, you're not ready for Jesus' second coming because you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ personally. Today, you can make certain that you're going to heaven. If you don't know you're going to heaven, like, man, I don't, if I were to stand before Jesus, would I really be confident that I'm going to heaven? If that's you today, if you, have, if you don't have that confidence, you can know, the Bible says today. You can have that confidence. And this is how: it's acknowledging that Jesus is king, it's acknowledging that Jesus is able to save you from your sins. You see, God created you to have a relationship with Him, but our sins-that is the wrong we've committed in our life-has separated us from His holiness. And as we're separated, there's nothing that can get us back to him. No religion, no works, no good, no nothing. Because God's standard is perfection. And we've broken that. But this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago to die on the cross, to bridge that gap. When he went to the cross, he took the wrath of God upon himself. And in that, he paid for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. And our response is to receive. He did all the work. It's free. Receive. Receive it. You receive it by this, with your mouth, whether quietly or audibly say, Lord Jesus, I place my faith and trust in you now. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sins. Lord Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you now. Just tell them that. Just tell them that. Receive them. So Father, I just pray right now for anybody in this room that needs to receive you, they would do that now. They would just say, Lord Jesus, I place my faith and trust in you alone. If that's you, with every head's bowed and eyes closed, if today you're receiving Jesus Christ as Savior, today you're making sure of it, today you're saying, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive my sins. I'm placing my faith and trust in you alone. Jesus, I'm in. Jesus, I, 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 I want your forgiveness. If that's you, every head's bowed and eyes closed, raise that hand up high. Say, yeah, that's me. I want Jesus. I want, I want him in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Raise that hand up high. It's not the raising your hand that saves you. By the way, you're just indicating what God's already doing in your heart. Awesome. Lord Jesus, now I pray for every single person in this room that we would be a person of prayer these last 10 minutes of our service. That God, that we would get out of our comfort zone. I pray you call people to the front to cry out to you to do what only you can do. I pray that lives are changed that people will confide in, in, in people to pray over them pray you would do business in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.